Today we're dealing with a passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 13. And this is one of those passages that as a pastor, you you just like to just skip over, you know, uh, because it deals with discipline within the church. It deals with exposing sin within the church. And so it's, it's difficult. And I, I felt a little bit awkward because, you know, we are an age integrated church. And for those that may be listening to this, uh, on the uh, on the web that means not we're not family integrated we're age integrated because not everybody has a family okay but everybody has an age and so we are all we are here uh, with all ages together in the same gathering to hear the same message and it's my responsibility to feed the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made me an overseer, an elder. And I want to feed the flock, and I don't want the flock to choke, <laughs> you know. I don't want them to uh, gag. Um, but I want to be able to serve the congregation well. Okay, so I'm going to try at various points to use some uh, euphemisms and some, some terminology that those of you who are older will know what I'm talking about. Those who are younger, just don't worry about it. Okay, just let it go by. Um, and we're going to talk about dealing with sin in the church of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. If you'd like to stand with me for a reading of an extended passage of God's Word. And ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to receive the truth that is revealed here. Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from, you, from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world 
or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who, are, who also are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have inspired the Apostle Paul to write this passage so that we would know how to respond appropriately to sin in our church. Lord, we thank you that uh, we are able to walk under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, enjoying the grace of God. But Lord, may we never presume upon that grace that it is license to sin. And Lord, may we be eager to play our part in dealing with sin whenever it is discovered within our local body. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to see things clearly here today, to not walk away with any misunderstandings or distortions of your word, but to have in our hearts and minds that which the Apostle Paul had in his heart and mind on the day when he wrote these words. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there is a perennial problem of sin in the church. I have a garden, a yard and a garden in my side of my house, and one of the things I like to, I like to get perennials. You know, perennials are the plants that come up every year. You know, you, you plant them once, and they just get bigger and nicer, hopefully, uh, over the years. They, they get more and more beautiful uh, because they are perennial. They come up every spring and they look beautiful all summer long. Well, this is also perennial, only it's not so good. It's the perennial problem of sin that uh, shows itself routinely uh, in the church. Now, it has been recently reported that the highly respected senior pastor of a major local church in Beaverton here in the Portland area has confessed to committing adultery with his secretary. Now both parties have repented of their sins to God and to their spouses and to their local church. It's also reported that by all accounts the local church elders there are handling this crisis biblically and faithfully. It's not easy to go through this type of crisis. It's heart-wrenching. But this is not the first time that this kind of moral failure has occurred in a local church. 
and it almost certainly will not be the last time. So what are we to do? Well, that is what Paul is teaching us on this passage here today. Paul is taking up the issue of sin in the young church in Corinth. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported, uh, and the, the idea here is generally known, okay, as the word has gotten out, that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now, even in the pagan world at this time, uh, this kind of immoral behavior was considered to be out of bounds. I'm going to step back a little bit. Maybe that'll help. Okay. We'll see what that does. Okay, and so we, fortunately, we live in a world in which God's common grace restrains sin in the world. We don't stop and think about that as often as we should, but if it were not for the Holy Spirit in the world today and the common grace of God that restrains sin, it is it is an accurate statement that all hell would break loose on the earth. And the passage that I look to to make this point is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. And there we read, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed, this is the Antichrist, in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, notice it's not a what anymore, it's a he. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawlessness the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. In other words, he's going to blow him away and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, this passage reveals to us that when he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way, humanity will explode into a chaotic war of everyone against everyone where no one is safe from all of the sins, whether it be sexual abuse or violence, the world will just become a dystopia, a place where no one is safe. And so what exactly is this thing that Paul's referring to when he calls it sexual immorality? Okay, we're gonna have to get into that a little bit, try to do it in a delicate way, but. I'm going to just provide this as my basic definition for this term. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity that occurs outside the bounds of a biblical marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. Now, you know, in the past, we didn't have to define it in these terms, but now we do. We do. We have to make it clear that what, what is moral is that sex that takes place inside of a biblical 
marriage. So why does God care whether people have sex outside of marriage or not? What's, is he a prude? You know, it, it, does he have issues? No. God has reasons. And the reasons are, are pretty clear. First of all, he opposes sexual immorality because, it, because he is zealous for his own glory. And this kind of sin defaces the glorious display of God's goodness and wisdom in his design for human sexuality. Sexuality is a beautiful, wonderful thing. We must be careful never to step across that line and start thinking in any way that sexual involvement with your spouse in marriage is somehow wrong. It's not. It's God's gift, it's God's design, it's beautiful. And so God is zealous to come down hard on sexual immorality because it is a distortion of the display of who he is and what he's like. Secondly, God opposes sexual immorality because marriage is intended to be a picture of the love relationship that exists between Christ and his bride, the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. And so when you allow any form of sexual immorality to come into the picture, it is a, a distortion of that beautiful representation that God intended. This is Christ and his church in a relationship that is, is beautiful. And then third, it is because God loves us. And he knows that this kind of sin can produce in us what I'm going to call a thrill-seeking approach to sex. And in that thrill-seeking approach, we can corrupt every aspect of human society. And when you look around you today and you see what's going on in the so-called sexual revolution, every relationship is now a potential erotic sexual relationship. And there is some camp or another everywhere that advocates for every relationship, every human relationship, to be a potential sexual relationship. But how does this, this idea of thrill-seeking relate to this kind of sin in the world and, and also in the church? What, what is it about thrill-seeking that's connected to sexual immorality? Well, the definition of thrill-seeking, and this actually comes from the dictionary, the adjective is eager to take part in exciting activities that involve physical or other personal risk. Okay, and they give an illustration. His thrill-seeking years led him into dangerous drug abuse. Okay? So it's this desire to have a thrill that draws you into behaviors that are risky, that are potentially harmful to yourself and to others. The noun for thrill-seeking is enthusiastic participation in exciting activities that involve physical or other kinds of risk. An example is 
such thrill-seeking always comes at a price. Okay, so you see the negative elements of thrill-seeking. You know, this is somebody who is behaving in uh, ways that are potentially going to be harmful to others. Now, there is a synonym provided, and this adds an interesting twist to this. The synonym is adventure. An adventure is an exciting experience or undertaking that is typically bold and sometimes risky. And they list adventures may be activities with danger, such as traveling. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting first one. Traveling, potentially dangerous. Exploring, like going into caves and climbing up you know, into mountains and going out into deep into the forest and so on. There's potential danger there. Skydiving is listed. Mountain climbing, scuba diving, river rafting, and other extreme, extreme sports. Now, what do we do with this? What, what is the, you know, this is thrill-seeking. Adventure is, to some degree, a thrill-seeking activity. Riding a roller coaster is a thrill-seeking activity, okay? Putting yourself into situations in which you scream is a thrill-seeking uh, activity. So the question is, is all of this wrong? Well, not necessarily. Not all thrill-seeking is bad. But all thrills do the same thing. And this is where I can get a, little, get, get a little nerdy on you. Can I do that? Can I get into a little science, some physiology here? All thrills stimulate our glands. And they dope us with a dose of our own hormones. How many of you have heard of the fight or flight response? Okay, here you are, you get, you know, here you're walking out in the woods like, like Brian and, you, and, you, and a bear comes out from behind a tree. Now, Brian is standing there, he's got his rifle <laughs> and he also has his training. He, he knows what to do about this, but there is, a, there is a sudden pumping, your heart begins to beat really fast and it's beating really fast because your adrenaline is being secreted from your glands in order for you to either have the energy that you need to fight or to run, and to run fast, to run faster than you've ever run in your life. And that, that experience of confronting a bear and then deciding whether you're gonna shoot him or whether you're gonna hightail it is thrilling. And if you have that experience routinely, it becomes an addiction. You know, firefighters, you know, I'm talking about the guys who parachute in and, and do all, you know, with the, the dangerous forest fires, they get addicted to their own adrenaline. And they find themselves being restless and unable to, to, to uh, be comfortable for very long, they want to go back and fight another fire. Special ops military guys have the same problem. Their marriages often struggle because this guy just wants to get back out into the field. Why? Is it because he's patriotic? I wish it was, but it's actually because he wants to get another dose. And you can't get that dose without another extreme experience of danger.
when people jump out of airplanes with parachutes, they're getting a thrill. When people ride a roller coaster, they're getting a thrill, if it's a decent roller coaster, <laughs> okay? So my point here is that we're, we're dealing with something physiological. And, and when this becomes a thrill-seeking uh, mindset, it sets us up to turn what God intended to be a wholesome pleasure into something that does not satisfy unless it becomes more and more extreme in various ways to get a, another dose of our own hormones, our own dopamine, our endorphins. Now, I'm gonna just make a statement. Whenever we pursue the pleasures of God, the pleasures that God has created, without regard for his purposes for those pleasures, we become thrill seekers. We want the pleasure without the purpose. And this is a pretty good description of human culture as we become more and more driven by this desire to be thrilled in one way or another. So, God's purpose for sexual pleasure is to draw couples into biblical marriage relationships that last a lifetime and that support, first of all, companionship. Your spouse is intended to be your truest and dearest friend. And I'm so glad to be able to say that that describes my Bonnie, my closest, dearest friend. It is also intended to allow us to avoid sexual immorality. It gives us a relationship in which we can be sexually fulfilled. And then for those who are young and, and healthy and able to do so, it is also intended to lead to procreation, to babies are conceived and born into a family with both a father and a mother who are dedicated to taking care of that child, providing for it, training it in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's God's purpose for sexual pleasure, okay? Now, do not get out of this that I'm saying if you can't conceive and have children, you shouldn't have sex. I'm not saying that. God's not saying that. Because there's still companionship. And there's still the need to avoid sexual immorality. But when you're young and healthy, there's a good chance that you will conceive children. And that is a good thing. So we write, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, we're gonna look at that passage in more detail in a moment, but I just wanna make the point here, there's a purpose for this pleasure. There's a purpose for this pleasure. And when we divorce the purpose from the pleasure, we end up slipping into a thrill-seeking attitude that begins to distort the sexual relationship. When thrill-seeking attitudes creep in, we twist God's sexual pleasures into sexual perversions that no longer fulfill his purpose for creating those pleasures. 
when you read about all of the different kinds of ways that people commit sexual crimes. That is an example of God's gift of sexual pleasure being twisted into something destructive, harmful, and evil. Whether it's sex trafficking, child abuse, all the different things that happen, they happen because we have divorced the pleasures from the purposes of God. So never seek God's pleasures without honoring God's purposes. And this same truth can be stated for everything from alcohol to food, to clothing, right? To housing, everything, everything, every good thing that God has created for our enjoyment can become a twisted, perverted obsession with the thrill that comes from those things. So keeping sex inside of marriage is God's way of avoiding this kind of sin. And now I'll share with you the context for the earlier statement and Paul's counsel on how to have a great marriage. Paul writes in chapter seven and verse one, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now he's speaking in an idealistic sense. He's saying, it, ideally it would be great if everybody could just be fully devoted 100% to taking the gospel to the nations and not have the responsibilities, the burdens, the distractions of a marriage. And he tells us that in other places as well, that he'd rather people remain like him you know, and not marry. And some people have taken that and said, well, that's God's best, so that's what I'm gonna do. But I want you to notice that uh, being married with kids is the default setting for the human race. And even elders in the church are expected to be married and to have children. So if this is God's highest and best, it's interesting that he does not offer it as an option for, uh, for seeking out elders and deacons in the local church. So that's another subject, and I gotta be careful now, because that's where Greg goes off on rabbit trails, okay? But let's take a read here. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. This is a debt, this is an obligation. Do you, need, do you see that? Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. So I want you married couples to realize you're indebted to one another to express affection. So guys, whatever your issues are, this is God's command. And wives, whatever your issues are, this is God's command to you. You have an obligation to show affection. Now, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Now think about that. You belong to one another. You belong to one another. And in that relationship, you should be available to one another. Think of it this way. Can I touch my hair in one another? Can I caress my shoulder? Which, what am I talking about? We're talking about a relationship in which I can caress my wife. My wife can caress me. We can show affection to one another, extremely intimate affection to one another. It's an obligation. It's a debt. And it's one to be delighted and joyful and rejoicing as we enter into this wonderful relationship within what the scriptures call the marriage bed. Okay? So, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. That means there will be times in which you agree together that we're going to forego this intimacy in order that we might give ourselves to fasting and prayer. This, the, in, the, in the early church, fasting and prayer was a routine of seeking the face of God and, and growing in your relationship with the Lord. And to do so, you would forego normal pleasures like food and sex. But it was only for a time because Paul is very, very uh, much a realist here. He says, only for a time and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Evidently, from Paul's perspective, actually from God's perspective, not having sex as often as you should can put pressure on you to lose your self-control. So this is not an excuse to sin. It's simply an observation that this urge, this desire builds up over time and Paul says, when you do agree, you consent with one another to forego this intimacy for a, pe a period of time, come back together because I don't want you to get to a place in which you are now struggling to control yourself. And the husband and the wife should recognize that in one another and be delighted in fulfilling that responsibility in one another's lives. So as a husband and wife, you know, this is Paul's instruction on how to have a wonderful life as a couple in this area of your relationship. God's word concerning our sexual nature is entirely practical. There's no idealism here. There's no illusions here. He's just calling it as it is. It's kind of bold. It's kind of, you know, blunt. Uh, but it is the truth. This is God's word on this subject. Now this kind of sin of immorality, sexual immorality, thrill-seeking sexual immorality was judged worthy of death under the law of Moses. 
And this specific sin that was being committed in Corinth is named right here. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 11. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, the phrasing of this particular sin suggests that this is not the person's mom involved. This is his father's wife, like a stepmother. And the sin is a, dis- is a dishonoring of the father and in the process drawing her, his, his wife away, perhaps even to the point of divorce. And it is forbidden by God in his word. Now when it says here that that their blood shall be upon them, that's a way of saying it's their own fault. They did this. The, the, the uh, worthy of death, they'll surely be put to death and their blood is upon their own hands. They brought this about. So while sex inside of marriage is a very good thing and pleasing to God, All sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, we read, Marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, marriage is respected. Marriage is honorable. Every culture around the world has some version of this institution of marriage. And without getting too weird, let me just, and I think I've said this before in other contexts, but God knows how the sexual urge operates. And he knows that once you are in a state of arousal, uh, your mental functions, your mental capacity begins to get hijacked by those hormones, okay? And you can go crazy. I mean, in a good way, okay? You can just have a wonderful time because you're enjoying all these physiological functions that are going on in you. It's not the fight or flight response. It's a sexual arousal response, a desire to be with this person and to, and to have them and for them to have youth. And in that state of, of arousal, the marriage bed is undefiled, okay? In, in other words, it's a safe place to give yourself over to those desires and to enjoy the sexual relationship that God intended. It's a safe, morally safe place in a sense, to go crazy. Now, I want to take that metaphor and carry it over to the other side. Outside of marriage, it says, you know, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And here's what happens, and and I want all of you to understand this. When you begin to find yourself in in a state of arousal with somebody, and it's not your wife, it's not your husband, there's a very strong likelihood that your 
hormones will hijack your brain. And you begin to tell yourself lies in that situation, that this is okay, I'm not doing anything wrong. And because of that, you end up doing things that are horribly wrong. And then after the deed is done, the condemnation and the guilt fall upon you like a, like a load of bricks and Satan just kicks the tar out of you because he wants to destroy your life. He wants, to, he wants you to be suicidal. He wants you to run away like Judas and kill yourself. That's what Satan's game is. But in that moment, when you're aroused, your hormones hijack your brain and you're going crazy. It's like, a it's like a form of temporary insanity. Now this is not a, an excuse for it. We're not condoning it in any way. The point is, if you don't keep that sexual behavior in the marriage bed, it becomes extremely destructive. And that's why we have the problems we have today in our society. Because people condone behaviors now and even advocate for changing the laws in order to allow behavior that is a perversion of the sexual relationship. And it is, uh, it is not just harmful to the individuals involved, but to society as a whole. It's called an abomination. And it's a sin that is so evil that it causes society itself to unravel. And it breaks down the boundaries that had been established by the restraining power of God's common grace. So God takes sexual sins very seriously. And Paul is amazed that the young church in Corinth has not responded to this as it should. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, But you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, rather than mourn, and we have to kind of read into this, uh, we have to read between the lines a little bit here. We know they're proud about something. But what are they proud about? Well, it may be that they are proud of themselves because they think they're being so tolerant of the offender. That they're being loving and kind and patient and generous and giving this guy some time to kind of figure it out on his own that he ought not to be having his father's wife as a, a sexual partner. Or it may be that they are so excited about being liberated from the law of Moses that they feel that it's a virtue to be passive in the face of this particular sin. We, we do not know for sure, but we know that they were puffed up, that they found this as a, as a kind of a badge of honor, that they, their church was, uh, you know, progressive, right? They're were, they were really spiritual. But either way, their response should have been to remove the offender from the fellowship of the church. That's, that is Paul's judgment, and he's going to tell them how to do it. So Paul's ready to lead this young church, even from a distance, in doing the right thing. Through his letter, he's telling them exactly what to do. So he writes, for I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, says, I'm with you there. My spirit is, is with you in this, dealing with this issue. No, he's not, this is, I don't think this is talking about some, you know, astral projection or something like that. 
He's just saying, I'm with you on this, and, and you can do this. He says, I've already judged as though I were present. So we know he's not saying that he is present in the literal sense. But he says, I have judged him who has done this deed. Paul wants the church to feel that even though he is far away, he's still with them in this difficult task. And having the facts already very clear, nobody's denying the facts of the situation, there was no reason not to act quickly. And he's going to get in the next passage, he's going to get into why it's important to act quickly. Because this kind of sexual immorality is like leaven in a lump of dough. Leaven doesn't stay in one place. Leaven permeates the dough. My wife bakes, she does lots of sourdough bread and uh, other kinds of bread and she knows all about this idea of, of leaven, of yeast and, and how the dough becomes permeated and it puffs up and becomes, you know, a, a wonderful loaf of bread because of it. But sin is also like that. It, it creeps through the, the, the church and it leavens the whole lump. So we're going to look at that next week. But this week, we're just going to point out that this needs to be dealt with quickly because leaven doesn't stay in one place. That's the point. Okay? So the process of disfellowshipping a fellow member is laid out by the Apostle Paul here. And he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. Now, this is to be done in, the res in response to what they know to be the will of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's being done in his name. You don't do anything in Jesus' name that Jesus wouldn't agree with, that he's not behind it, that he's not supporting it. So Paul is telling them Jesus is supporting this and it's to be done in his name. Secondly, it's to be done in an assembly of all the church members. It's not something that's done off in an office somewhere. It's something that happens in a gathering of the church members so that everyone can observe, everyone can hear what happens, everyone can participate, and their prayers also are in agreement uh, with what is, what is taking place. It's to be done with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what that means, okay? I mean, it can be taken different ways. But I do believe that it's something where there is a sense of an unction, where the Spirit of God is empowering them to do this properly, that their heart attitudes are right, and that their intentions are good. It's to be done by delivering the offender to Satan. Now this is a, this is a, a big issue here. What does that mean? What does it mean to deliver such a one to Satan? Are we damning their soul to hell? Is that what this means? No, it does not mean that they are eternally lost. You say, well, how do you know, Greg? Well, because Paul tells us in various places that it doesn't mean that. As we saw the last time I taught here, Paul had to do this more than once. And he gives us some details in order to help guide our attitude as we're doing it. 
So, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now you notice that the goal in this is that they may learn something. It's not eternal damnation. It's a, it's a way of teaching somebody that you should not do that. And Hymenaeus and Alexander are teaching heresy. He's not saying that they're lost. <coughs> oh, that didn't work. Sorry. He's not saying that they're eternally lost. He's saying that they need to learn not to teach these heresies. And a heresy is a distortion of sound doctrine. Now, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We know that they died because they lied to the Holy Spirit. But there is no evidence in that story that they were not believers, that they were not truly believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I do not believe that when God decides to discipline somebody in their Christian life, that it is an eternal damnation. Rather, it is a judgment like sending you to the locker. You know, when, you're, when you violate a, a rule in a sport and the coach sends you to the locker room, he doesn't kick you off the team. He just sends you to the, you're not gonna finish this game. And Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, were sent to the locker room of heaven, you know, and their spirit was still saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, Satan was allowed also to buffet Paul. Uh, to protect him from pride. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about what's going on here, but Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And so we have here a, a picture of being delivered to Satan by the church means being cast out of fellowship and into the world. And that is where Satan will be free to attack the offender's body, but not his soul. Satan is restrained. Now this is a difficult doctrine for us to wrap our minds around because we project ourselves into the situation and if we were God, we would never do that. But we are not God, so we need to be careful that we don't end up trying to judge God for acting like God. Now, the story of Job illustrates this point in a very difficult way for us to agree with. But we know that it happened. So let's take a look at what happened. In Job chapter 1 and verse 8, the Lord himself said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, who fears God and shuns evil? And so in verse 9, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? You know, you've got the guy totally protected, and you've got this hedge built around him so that nothing can harm him. He says, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So that's the challenge that Satan is 
throwing down. And God responds in chapter 1 and verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here we have God giving Satan permission to touch his possessions, but not his body, not yet. And then later in chapter two and verse five, after Job said, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan says, but if you stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, he will surely curse you to your face. And God responded in verse six, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Now this is hard, and I'm not gonna to try to say it's not hard. We do know that God did this in order to bring Job to a higher level of understanding of who God is and to prevent Job from having the kind of pride that would be sinful. And Job's pride was exposed in this experience, but ultimately he was restored. In fact, he had double of everything that he had originally by the end of the, end of the book of Job. But I want you to see here that God yields us to Satan for his purposes. Satan is wanting to kill and destroy, but Satan is restrained. God allowed Satan to buffet Job in the same way that he buffeted Paul, but he was completely under God's restraint every step of the way. Now what I want you to come away from this with is that whatever you go through, whether it's because of sin or whether it's because God is preventing you from sinning as he was with Paul, God is in control. He's in control. You say, but, but I've been turned over to Satan. But Satan is under God's control. You do not need to be afraid that you're being uh, rejected by God or punished and condemned and all of God, if you're God's child, he will deal with you as a father deals with his sons and God spanks his kids. God deals with us in difficult things, but he's in control and he does love us and he's working everything together for our good in order that we might be conformed to the image of our older brother in the family of God, Jesus Christ, that we would be more like him. And so I just want to encourage your heart, whatever you go through, God has not abandoned you. God loves you. And as painful as the situation may be, he's going to bring you through the fire. He's going to bring you through the flood. It's not the end of the story. And so this is how the Lord may deal with sin. I say may because he doesn't always do the same thing. But in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he tells the church, deliver such a one to Satan. Notice, for the destruction of the flesh. 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Can you see the consistency in this particular aspect of, of God's word? Gross sin of any kind in the church may be dealt with or may be prevented by our Lord simply by allowing Satan to touch our possessions or to touch our bodies with harm, even to the point of death. And we're still not lost because we're still in the family of God. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, regarding taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, a manner that does not recognize the body of the Lord in the representation of that loaf. We are one loaf. You know, the body of Christ, one loaf. We all partake of the same loaf. And in the Lord's Supper, people can take part in the Lord's Supper with animosity toward one another, with spiritual pride and self-righteousness, all kinds of ways. And it says here, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. And that means they're dead, okay? The scriptures use this term sleep to describe Christians who have died, okay? For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So if, if you're living, in, if you're partaking in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and lightning hasn't hit you yet, don't think that means God doesn't care. He's giving you time to judge yourself in order that you might not need to be judged. But if you don't get the point, if you don't get the memo, when we are chastened by the Lord, uh, it is done in order that we might not be condemned with the world. So notice there's, there's a salvation at the end of these sentences. So when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. I hope you're coming away from this with a sense of eternal security, okay? That you, your soul is safely in God's hands and nothing can take you out of his hands. Not even you. And so, to be delivered to Satan is not eternal condemnation. It can be God's discipline to keep us humble and to keep us morally upright. We should have a healthy fear of God's discipline because it's real and when it happens, it's painful. But he loves us. He loves us too much to ignore it. He's going to intervene and when he does, it is not because he has stopped loving us, but rather because he's loving us with a tough kind of love that helps us to grow in grace and ultimately come into his presence in heaven, completely conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. The church's response to this sin was not good. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, your glorying is not good. 
So evidently the Corinthian church leaders were thinking that their toleration of this adulterer in the church was somehow a display of their maturity in not being judgmental or instead of, uh, or in, in being merciful. They're trying to be more spiritual than God, okay? They're trying to be more merciful than God, uh, more loving than God. Anytime you're trying to do anything more than God, it, you're on dangerous ground, okay? The reason we have so much problems in, in our culture today is because we have a, a secular state that tries to be more generous than God toward people who are making their own bed and now they don't want to lay in it, okay? There's a reason why most people are in poverty, and that's because they make a long chain of bad decisions, and now they've ended up where they are. Not always, but many times, they're in that situation because of bad decisions that they've made over the course of their lifetime, leading up to that moment. And they can walk out of that poverty if they're willing to take the word of God at face value and begin to apply themselves with the support and encouragement of the local church, they can have a future that is bright and even prosperous, not in a get rich quick sense, but in the sense of they'll be able to have a house or housing, they'll be able to have clothing, they will be able to have food, they'll be able to provide for themselves and maybe even provide for a family. But all of that comes from walking in the light of God's word in regard to that area of life. But no, we have a state that says, we're gonna take care of you, regardless of how stupid you are, regardless of how foolish you are. We're going to make sure that you have everything you need without having to work. The Bible says, if any will not work, neither shall he eat. And God is not being mean when he says that. And so, the Corinthian church evidently is trying to be more spiritual than God, and it's not going to go well. So Paul's teaching elsewhere, and perhaps even uh, in a previous letter that he refers to, may have been under misunderstood as somehow endorsing this kind of lawlessness and lack of concern for sin. But in any case, they were glorying in what was happening rather than mourning and taking appropriate action. Disfellowship, not excommunication. You know, I know many churches will use the term excommunication as a Protestant church, and that is really reaching over and borrowing a Catholic doctrine. Because the Catholic Church teaches that the Lord's Supper is a, sac uh, a sacrament and that it has a, a, a saving capacity to it. And so to be excommunicated is to be refused to participate in the Lord's Supper and that condemns your soul, if I understand correctly. Now, in the Protestant church, or I could say in the biblical church, we do not excommunicate, we disfellowship. And disfellowshipping means we withdraw that, that uh, place within the body, and we say we are not going to act like it's business as usual. You are living in sin. We must, as a body, not just the leaders of the church, but as a body, we have to respond to this sin by backing away. It doesn't mean we're unkind. 
It doesn't mean that we won't talk to you, but our conversation will always be in the direction of confronting you with a, a known sin that needs to be repented of and walked away from. Now, next week we're gonna look at how this kind of discipline purifies the church. But I wanna make just uh, borrow a phrase from, this, from the future here. And this disfellowshipping is not done because someone's made an accusation, but rather because someone has been actually found guilty, okay? Sometimes people think they have the right to disfellowship because they, someone or they themselves have made an accusation, but an accusation is not a conviction, okay? And so we need to see it in that light. Now, I'm pleading with you again at the conclusion of this message. Examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. It is so easy in the church in the United States to have a false assurance that we think we're saved because we go to church, because we maybe give an offering, because we don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls that do. We get this idea that you know we're saved, but the fact is, if you don't see evidence of grace in your life, you need to check your spiritual birth certificate because there's nothing keeping you from coming to Christ and being born again except you. Okay, you just need to examine yourself. He says, do you know, not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? It's noticeable, okay? You can tell. And so you wanna be able to press in and say, God, do I see evidence of your Holy Spirit in my life? Do I see grace in my life? And, uh, and if not, I, I wanna come to you and say, God, please forgive me. You know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, you know, press in, be, be born again. And then look closely to see, uh, as I say, that Christ is in your life. And then Hebrews chapter 13, related to this topic here today, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. Those of you who are married, enjoy that bed, okay? Enjoy it. Rejoice in it, because the pleasure that you find there is for the very purpose of giving you the companionship you need to help you avoid sexual immorality. And if you're young, it may even lead to babies, and that would be great as well. So the marriage bed is undefiled. Enjoy this wonderful place that God has provided. But be warned that fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Whether you're in the church or outside of the church, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So respond to God's commands regarding sex by keeping all the pleasures of God closely tied to his purposes for each of those pleasures. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, you would use what we have shared here today to guide us, to help us to live for your glory in ways that perhaps we didn't understand before. Lord, help us to be zealous for this area of life and to display to a watching world that we are not prudes, that we're not just old fashioned, but that we honor God 
and that we honor the gifts that God has given us by enjoying them the way that he intended us to enjoy them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.